Well, good morning, friends. My name is Dave Hyatt. Um, I'm on the pastoral staff here at Hershey Free in the area of missions and local outreach. Now, I'm going to make a statement that you may not have heard before. You may have, but either way, I think it's pretty, uh, pretty bold. The local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. You know, we've been in a series um, on a united church in a divided world. And part of what we've been talking about, what we've been arguing, is that what our world needs more than anything is to see a church that is united, united around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there are a lot of important institutions in our world, a lot of important meetings going on even, even now, you know, with the um, governmental, military, educational institutions, medical institutions. But the local church and local churches around the world that embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, that believe the word of God, that are waiting for his return, are the most important the hope of the world. That's not just my opinion. I believe those are the, the words of, of Jesus uh, told in a slightly different way. So I just want to um, talk about that as we, uh, we move to our passage this morning. We're going to look at a, um, probably one of the most, uh, pa- most talked about passages in all of human literature, not just in the Bible, but in all of human literature. It's from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous teaching. There are book after book and sermon after sermon, message after message been talked about uh, on these passages. So you're probably familiar with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God, and, you, the, and those statements. But be, after that, um, there's a, there are two statements by Jesus that we're going to focus on today. And they are these. The first is, Uh, Jesus' statement to his disciples. I believe he's talking to his disciples here. There are crowds around him. There are other people around. And uh, they're certainly welcome to listen. But his, his instruction is for his disciples. And he says to his disciples, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And he says, You are the light of the world. A a city on a hill, a town on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So these, these two statements about salt and light here, we're going to unpack and, and look at what they say. The first one, on the salt of the earth. Um, I looked and people had all kinds of ideas of what. There were 11 different interpretations of what uh, Jesus might have implied about salt. Um, lots and lots of, but salt, because it's such a, uh, a radically important element, there's lots of different applications for it, right? In fact, uh, salt in the time of, of Jesus was, was something that was used for, uh, for currency. People would give it uh, for payment for soldiers. You've heard the expression, someone's worth their salt, perhaps. Um, it was something that was used in trade, but it was something really, really critical. But I believe the two um, most pertinent analogies or uh, metaphors that Jesus was using about salt is, is the first, it has a preserving effect. In the, in the time of Christ, you know, there was no uh, refrigeration. People didn't uh, have the ability to preserve food in, in a lot of ways, but one of the primary ways was through salt. You know, they would salt fish or salt meat to, to keep it, to keep it from decaying and from rotting. And Jesus, when he says to his disciples, you are the light of the, or you are the salt of the earth. I think part of what he is saying is that we have a, uh, we as his followers can have a preserving effect, an anti-decaying effect on the world around us. And, and when he says you, 
Um, I'm from Western Pennsylvania, from near Pittsburgh. We would say yens. Um, it's, a, it's a plural you. It's a y'all. It's not just a you individually, personally, in your own little um, world, but, but you. That's the, you know, the, the thoughts about the local church, that local body, these disciples. You all are the salt of the earth. You have this preserving effect. And we'll talk more about what that looks like as we live it out. But it also has an enhancing effect. Anybody who um, uh, enjoys salt as much as I do know that it has an enhancing effect on, on uh, the flavors that it brings out. We put it on, on meat, we put it on vegetables, we put it on, uh, my wife puts it on watermelon. It goes, it just brings out the flavor in things and makes it taste better. Um, of course, too much can make something taste kind of rotten, but in general, we use salt to enhance the flavor of things. And I believe that Jesus, as he's talking here, says that uh, his disciples can have an enhancing effect on the world around them. I know the world is, um, the, the reason the world is looking for a united church is because there's a divided world, right? These, these ideas of preserving, enhancing. Our world is, um, and not just our world locally. I, um, in my role as missions pastor, I get to see uh, with a, a bit of a broader view, uh, countries like Haiti and Burkina Faso and Russia and Moldova, uh, places all over the world to see, boy, there is a sense of, of division and brokenness and hopelessness that, that's pervasive uh, the world over. But the, the church, uh, the body of Christ, can offer these preserving and enhancing effects in the world. And we'll talk a bit more about what that, what that looks like. And secondly, Jesus uses another metaphor, and he says, light, you are the light of the world. And again, he doesn't uh, say that um, individually, personally. The you, unlike English, it has a, in Greek here, it's a plural you. You all, yuns, are the light of the world. And light has, I'm going to point out two effects. One, there's a revealing effect of light, right? When you turn it on, you see things. When you turn it on, you're able to observe what's going on in the room. If I shut off the light, try to cross this room, I'll run into things. But Light has a revealing effect, and in, in the scriptures, light very often, the, the revealing effect of light was it was the revelation of God, that, that light was considered like Israel was given revelation about who God was that they were to reveal to the nations around them, that God was good, God was kind, God didn't want child sacrifice or temple prostitution, God didn't want all these awful, awful practices, so their law and their integrity and their following of the law was to reveal something about God. He revealed himself to Adam and to Abraham and to David. So we see that the covenants God's revealing so that um, when Jesus said to his disciples, uh, you are the light of the world, there's a, a revealing effect there. And secondly, there's a demonstrating effect. As he goes on, he says, uh, first, they're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And uh, that there, no one takes a lamp and just puts it under a bushel basket or under a bowl. Rather, they put it up so everyone can see. There's a, a demonstrating effect. He said, let your light so shine before others that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So there's a, a demonstrating effect by the, the light that is in them that they demonstrate that there's a different kind of way, I would say to be human, a different way to, to live out the human experience, a, a way of true human flourishing, one, one author has put it, so that light 
um, both reveals who God is, that we, we hold that truth, but it also demonstrates the, the light that we, we can share in our lives uh, through our, our following of Christ can demonstrate the reality of the good news of the gospel. And our world desperately needs to, to see both of those things. I'm going to circle back to talk a little bit more about salt. Um, one of the interesting things about salt is... Um, you know, it's got to be in proximity to things. It's got to be on something. A little pile of salt over here next to my steak doesn't make it taste any better, right? A little pile of salt over here next to my wife's watermelon doesn't make it taste any better. It's got to be on it. It's got to be close. It's got to be mixed in to give any sort of effect. So this is true of, uh, of the salt of our lives too. It's, it's something that's true innately of it. It's salty. It tastes salty. Um, but it has to be in proximity to something and the, um, in order to give that, that effect. And one author has called this uh, contagious holiness. When we look at the life of Jesus, it's interesting to me, the, the holiest, without argument, the, the holiest human being ever to live on planet Earth from a Christian perspective was Jesus of Nazareth. He, um, he was the Son of God incarnate. He followed God's law perfectly, fastidiously, never violating it in thought or in deed. And yet, he didn't have a sense of, I need to be far away from people that I consider bad or anyone considers bad. I need to, to reserve myself. I need to keep myself clean from what's going on around me. He had the opposite perspective that his goodness, his kindness, his holiness could actually rub off on other people. So he was more than willing to wade into situations that would make us awfully uncomfortable. In fact, situations that would make us feel like we were going to get dirty. So I want to look at a passage that, that I just absolutely love. It's from uh, the book of Luke. So Matthew that we've just looked at is one of the, uh, the gospel authors. Another perspective on the life of, of Jesus. He had four, uh, four uh, people who were taking different views of his life was the gospel of Luke. So Luke looks at the life of Jesus, and he tells this story, one of the, uh, a fascinating story of Jesus. And I want you, as I read along, read along with me, it's from Luke 7, uh, chapter, chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. It's a little bit long, but I'll, I'll stop throughout and unpack some things. So when one of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, you, you may or may not know, but they were the um, religious rulers. They were uh, really studied in the law. The, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, it's no small thing that Jesus went to the Pharisee's house. The Pharisees were opposing Jesus. Uh, some of them were trying to take his life. So, but Jesus goes at the invitation of this Pharisee, goes to his house. Now, a woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. Now, in, uh, this uh, Luke uses a re relatively tame term when he says a sinful life. The implication is she was a prostitute. This lady had lived a, a very, very uh, sinful life. So, but she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came, uninvited, she came to the Pharisee's house with an alabaster jar of perfume, a very expensive alabaster jar of perfume. And she stood behind him at his feet weeping. Jesus would have been reclined in such a way at the table, leaning forward, his feet would have been stretched out behind him. She stood behind him at his feet weeping. And this word weeping, and, and as you can tell, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Was an, it was an ugly cry. I mean, okay, she was just letting down. Her tears are dripping on his feet. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. Now, why were Jesus' feet dirty to begin with? Well, we'll see later that uh, Simon hadn't 
hadn't given Jesus any water to wash his feet. So Jesus' feet were, were filthy from road grime. He was a guy, they were wearing open-toed sandals and coming in with, from dirt roads where there were cows and horses and donkeys wandering around. So Jesus' feet would have been filthy. And here she wipes them with her hair, kisses them with her mouth, and pours perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man, so Jesus, this is Simon, the Pharisee, talking to himself. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon. Now, it's interesting. Jesus answers a question he's never asked, but he, he anticipates, he knows what Simon is thinking. Simon addresses him by name. I have something to tell you. Tell me then, teacher, he said. Well, Jesus says, two people owed a certain money lender. Uh, they owed him money. One owed him 500 denarii, so maybe about two years' wage, and the other 50 denarii. So they both owed him money. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, which was totally customary. It would have been so rude to not give someone water to wash their feet. But she, she has wet my feet with her tears as she saw them filthy and disgusting because you didn't, you didn't greet me with normal hospitality. She was offended by that. So she washed my feet with her tears. She wet and wiped them with her hair. She lets her hair down, which is a shocking thing for a woman in the first century to let her hair down. And she wiped my feet with her very hair. You didn't give me a kiss, which was customary. He should have come up and greeted Jesus with a kiss on the cheeks, but he didn't. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, another customary thing that he didn't do. But she, she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, Simon, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, this woman, obviously, she let, she let it all, she let her hair down. She kissed his feet. She ugly cried. She, um, she was broken over her own sin, and, and her love for Jesus was expressed in, in ways that were, um, that, that seemed kind of uncomfortable. But Jesus doesn't seem a bit uncomfortable. He doesn't, you know, it's the, the alabaster, the, the perfume, the, her hair, her lips. These are all tools of her trade. But Jesus isn't embarrassed by this. Jesus isn't taken aback. He's, he is loved by this. And, you know, the most offensive person in this, in this whole story that, um, that Luke tells, and this is not a parable, this is a real story that happened in the life of Christ, is Simon. Simon is, is rude. Simon um, judges Jesus. He doesn't greet him with a, with a kiss. He doesn't wash his feet. He doesn't anoint his head with oil. All the things that would have been expected for any guest, much less a religious teacher. So Simon, now we know later that, that Jesus is the very son of God, come in the flesh. And so Simon's offense is far deeper than this woman's, and yet Jesus interacts kindly with him. So, so this man, this religiously conservative, religious bigot and jerk, Jesus is kind to him. Jesus teaches him gently. He tells him a parable. He tells him a story to try to get him to understand what's happening here. And Jesus is not offended by this woman who, who looks so awful and so sinful and yet is really in love with him and caring for him. Jesus, um, like salt, 
he gets close. It, he, he has this enhancing effect because he gets close enough. And we see this throughout the life of Christ. It's one of the most shocking and striking things about him is that he wades into situations, not with a worry that he's going to be contaminated by what's going on around him, but much more with how can I make this situation better? How can I bring life and love and hope and truth here? And Jesus doesn't, um, he doesn't hedge on truth. He says, um, your sins were many, but you are forgiven. But you are forgiven. Uh, Jesus doesn't come just like to make everybody happy, but he, he also he speaks truth, but in grace. He speaks grace and truth together. So, now, so salt, as we looked at, it has to be in proximity, right? It has to be close. But light, light works from a distance. You know, light scatters and goes everywhere and casts, uh, casts shadows and, and moves very fast. If you know, it moves 186,000 miles per second, as I recall from physics. Um, so light can work from a distance. So Jesus tells his disciples, um, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So as we said, there are two aspects to light earlier. You know, one was the, the revealing. Light in the scriptures has this idea of content, about who God is, that, um, that the disciples were entrusted with the truth of who Christ was. Now, later, obviously, he would die and he would raise again. So as followers of Jesus, we would have a message to tell the world about how God forgives sin. But, but even here in the, the ministry of Jesus, they were entrusted with the reality that Jesus was the, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah and Savior of the world. So this idea of light, they were entrusted with the, with the light of who God had Christ was. And uh, even back in, in Matthew uh, 4, it says, of, uh, it says that the light has shine, shone in the darkness amongst the Gentiles. So the, the light of the world, Jesus is the, the light of the world. Some uh, look at salt as the salt was for Israel, you know, the national Israel that they needed to be seasoned with salt. Um, and the light would be for the Gentiles, as Isaiah often says over and over. Jesus, in fact, um, the, the quote in Matthew 4 is from Isaiah 9, that the light, the Gentiles would see a light. And uh, we know that beautiful passage from Christmas that uh, the light has shown. So um, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So on the one hand, the, the revelation is entrusted to the disciples of who Jesus is and by extension, us and the local churches that are the hope of the world. But secondly, um, he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So the interesting thing when Jesus refers to good deeds here, um, they have to, a couple of observations. They, they have to be observable, right? Let your light so that, that our good deeds can somehow be observed by other people, that they see them, they look at them, they recognize them and say, ah, they're doing something. Now, Jesus says later, don't do your good deeds uh, before men, because that would be, if you're just giving to the poor or praying or whatever for the praise of people, that's no good. But when your deeds are done before people to glorify God, that, uh, that's what he, he's uh, telling the church to do, his disciples to do and telling us to do, the, that our good deeds may be seen. So one, they have to be observable, things that, that are observed. And secondly, they have to be things that, uh, that those looking from the outside would consider uh, laudable or good. Uh, I, I think... It's good that you pray, for example. It's good that you read your Bible. It's good that you, uh, you attend church or you're, you're, you're joining us here. Um, it's good that you tuck your kids in at night and sing with them and pray with them. Those are all good things, but they're not necessarily observable 
or things that someone outside of a church context would, would consider even good. So the things that Jesus is talking about are things that the world can observe and say, yes, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I'm glad they're doing that. So someone could look at, at your life or the life of our church. And I don't, I'm not sure what those guys at Hershey Free Church believes. I'm not sure what my neighbors over there at Harvey Road believe. But boy, I'm glad they're here because they, they have a... Um, they bring good things into our community. And, and in fact, beyond simply uh, being nice and good, the, our good deeds can bring glory to God in heaven. They can be a signpost that there is really, uh, there is hope outside of this world. There's another way, there's a different way, excuse me, <clears throat> of being human. Um, that, that we can, uh, in Jesus' name, we can live out a life that is so countercultural, that is so different, a, a set of values that kind of breaks through. I don't know if you're um, familiar with a, a crocus, a little flower in, in Turkish where we lived for a while. It's called a kardelen. kardelen. The, the crocus is the first flower that kind of busts up through the, the snow in the spring. And it, the good thing about it is it points to something magnificent that's about to happen, that spring is about to happen. It's the first fruits in our lives as the good deeds we live out um, in the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, for the glory of God, can, can point people to a different direction. Like, hey, we're not just a bunch of rats trapped on a wheel, that, that life is not just about accumulating more and more and bigger and better and the young and the pretty and survival of the fittest. But in the kingdom of God, as, as you look back at the Beatitudes before this, uh, the, the poor, the meek, the, the humble, they're, they're those who will be exalted. And so we show a completely different way to be human that is beautiful and is life-giving. One author put it like this. Um, this is Blaise Pascal uh, from the 17th century. He was a French mathematician, physicist. Uh, he said, make good men wish it, wish the gospel were true. And then show them that it is worthy of reverence because it really understands human nature, attractive because it promises true good. So our good deeds can be used by God to show a different way to be human, a different way to be fully human. They can point the way to a different reality. Um, some of the good deeds before we go to that that I wanted to, to look at. So what, what kind of things are observable and laudable um, that, that for us maybe presents to the world a better a better story of what it means to be human well i think around here if if you go downstairs here we have a food bank that's available for our community to come to partake of for to feed their family to take care of their kids um our compassion ministry is always ready to help people in need um they just for the glory of god we have something we call a lift grant around here we have literally about $40,000 in our lift grant fund to give to uh, $500 grants to people in our congregation who are involved in good organizations um, in our community. So please uh, go on to HFC Info and, and apply for one of those if you're involved in, a, in an organization that blesses our community. Uh, in a few weeks, we'll be doing Church Beyond the Walls. Church Beyond the Walls is a time where we come together as a congregation we, to meet the physical and spiritual needs of our community, uh, to both to demonstrate and declare the love of Christ to other people through physical projects. We're helping people. Um, our Alpha course, which is coming up in a few weeks as well. Alpha is a time when people can come 
They can sit together. They can discuss matters of faith with no judgment. They can ask their question, questions, whatever they are. Um, if they're angry at God, you know, I've had people say, well, how can a good God allow this, that, and the other in my life or in the world? It's a place where people can just be, um, be honest and be loved. Downey Elementary, we're heading down there. Um, actually, uh, we'll be there this weekend helping with, uh, that's a under-resourced school in, in Harrisburg. So those are just a couple of examples um, for us as a church. Now, personally, there are neighbors and friends who do all kinds of fantastic things, but, um, and we'll touch on those, but globally, as I, I just want to commend you, Hershey Free Church, and your generosity in supporting missionaries around the world. We have missionaries who are in, in China working at a leper colony of a U.S. physician who works uh, with lepers in China just to bring them hope and life and healing. I, while they talk about Jesus. We sent a short-term team um, a couple years ago. The most impactful thing they did was paint the toenails of some, some ladies in an African village. Uh, um, we have missionaries who respond to earthquakes and floods around the world that they go in and they demonstrate and declare the good news about Jesus. Uh, us, and, and how about you personally? Like what personally, I say um, some, some advice, like how can you personally just be salt and light in the world? Well, first, in looking at the life of Jesus, I think, get close. Uh, don't worry about getting yourself dirty. Don't worry about being judged. If there's an opportunity for you to be involved, you have to to be salt, to be salty. Get get involved. Jump in. Don't worry about um, other people's judgment necessarily. Uh, go places. My mom was a bartender. I think she had a fantastic ministry in in the bar. After she became a follower of Jesus, she she stayed there, and she um, it wasn't the greatest job. She was providing for her family, but she really rubbed off on a lot of people. Um, be real in your hope and in your pain. Uh, if you are just so perfect and unapproachable that people say, boy, that person never really has problems, uh, you will have. Uh, Jesus, one of his great unclaimed, unclaimed promises, he said, in this world you will have trouble, but you could be of good cheer because he had overcome the world. So um, be real in both your hope and in your pain. If, you know, if you have kids who are not doing well or cancer, or be real about those and let people see it. Live for Jesus. Now that might sound simple and like, how do you, or overly complex, but I, I just, I've been to a lot of funerals recently, unfortunately, um, done a lot of funerals. And um, in those, I've been uh, funerals for uh, candy makers, you know, people who worked at the chocolate factory, people who um, were homemakers, people who are painters, people who are missionaries. And the, the common theme that they all had is they had a deep love for Jesus and a deep impact on other people because they did their work well and they loved people well. And I'd encourage you, uh, just, just live, live your life outwardly for Christ and ask, ask Jesus for help. There will be areas of your life that you're like, boy, here's a person I would like to, to influence, I'd like to, to, to share Christ's love with, but I just don't know how. Here's an area where I'm not very salty or I'm salty in the wrong way. Um, I don't, my light doesn't shine. Well, ask Jesus for help. He said, hey, ask, seek, knock, and he will help. He's given you his Holy Spirit to live out um, the, 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 the beauty of the Christian life in community. Um, so some last things I just want to close with this, some things that can blunt our impact in our, in our community and in the world around us. Well, isolation. Clearly, if salt is in the salt shaker, it's not doing a thing, right? Jesus said um, salt could lose its saltiness if it, if it fails uh, to be, I think, in some ways to be spread out. Um, light, if it's covered up, it loses its ability to illuminate. 
Now, your identity, I think one of the things uh, that I didn't point out earlier, it's your identity. Jesus says, this is who you are. So this is the default identity, but, but you have to be, um, we, we cannot be isolated or we won't have an impact. So isolation can lead to a lack of impact. Um, arrogance. One of the problems with Israel, and I think implicit in Jesus' statements, you are the light of the world, you are um, the salt of the earth, was, um, was a rebuke to Israel for taking the, the good news about God's uh, saving grace, that God worked through grace um, and, and hiding it and saying, this is true for us, but not true for the Gentile world around us. We don't want them to know. Um, and we can be like that. We can take our light and we can hide it. So arrogance to think that God's grace is somehow specifically exclusively for us. So arrogance can separate us. I had a, um, a friend I worked years ago in a lab at the med center. Um, and this is no praise to me, but she said, Dave, you're the first Christian I met who's not a jerk. Um, we had some great conversations. She was way smarter than me. She was MD, PhD uh, in the lab together. But, but sometimes our arrogance can be off-putting to people. Well, often, arrogance is always off-putting, right? But um, we need to show people that God is, is gracious. And, uh, and lastly, um, spiritual amnesia. So what do I mean by this? Uh, so you can forget that you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That you have um, God's spirit living inside of you. I think of... Um, if you've watched The Lion King, the, the old one where Simba is laying there looking up at the stars and uh, Simba, the little lion, his father says, Simba, you have forgotten who you are. You've forgotten who you are. Your legacy, you're the king and you're living here eating grubs in the field. You are a child of God. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And Jesus says to you, let your light so shine before people that they see your good deeds and glorify your fathers in heaven. So by the power of God's spirit, by the grace of God, let your light shine before people so they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven.